Good morning. Um, it is great to see you, even though I can't see you. Welcome to my house. My name is Gordon. Um, if you don't know me, please feel free to introduce yourself to me at the end of the service. Um, I have been a member of Rehope since 2008, um, when I was in my final year at university. Um, I love Rehope. I love the people there. I have seen such uh, amazing change in the church, but changing people through it. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a pleasure to be asked to speak um, here today. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say if the postman comes to the door, I'm really sorry. Uh, where I am, it's uh, Friday morning. Um, I have pre-recorded this message. I really just want to say thank you, though, to Laura for the kind, kind words she's just said about me. Those were lovely, very touching. Um, anyway, Laura asked me to speak way back in uh, November. Um, at that point, I had no notion that there would be a global pandemic and that I would be sitting in my front room uh, speaking to you all on a wee iPhone. Um, no notion of those things. Um, life changes very fast. It's very strange, very difficult. Um, I'm sure we're all uh, facing a multitude of, of, of different difficulties at the moment. Um, and a, a lot's been said about those things. Um, when I was asked to speak, the first thing that came in my head was that I wanted to speak about Lazarus from the Bible. And I have no idea why. I think perhaps because it's a simple story from the gospel. It is literally just a gospel message. Um, there's so many parallels between Lazarus and, and, and the story of Jesus. Um, and I thought it was a pretty straightforward thing to do. Then, of course, we're in a situation where um, where we're facing now two realities that we don't always have to face. One is which one is that we're we're not in control of the world. We're not in control of things that happen, and we feel like we are so often. And then it just takes one thing, and it just all falls apart. And the second reality we are facing now more than perhaps we have done is that we're going to die. And so then talking about this story about death, about us not being in control, um, seems both at the same time to be a bad plan to keep going with that and also actually a very good plan. Um, I hope that through this story, God is able to encourage you in some way. Um, I really do pray for that. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make this sermon uh, a wee three-tiered cake, so three levels. I'm a primary teacher when I'm not speaking to an iPhone in my living room. Um, so it's like three different levels of differentiation. Um, the first layer of the cake is just going to be like me telling the story to you. So if you don't know the story of Lazarus, then today's a good day to learn it, and, and that's great. Um, tier level two is going to be me talking about basically some kind of Bible read-through shares that I have about it. So I've read it, I've looked at the whole chapter, and five things really stood out to me. And they're just going to be simple little points um, for maybe you to think about and, and, and consider whether they apply to you as well. Um, and level three sounds like it's a very big jump, but actually, um, actually in many ways, I, I don't think it is. Level three is when we talk about the eternal consequences of the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, and yeah, that sounds big and grand, but really I, I, I don't think it necessarily is. And we'll get to that. So level number one is just the story of Lazarus. If you have not got a Bible, you could get one um, and read it. And, and I'm, as I say, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, please, though, do. Please do, do read the whole story. It's in John chapter 11, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. I'm not going to go into every single little detail about it. I'm just going to kind of skim over some key bits, but please make sure I'm not lying. I've got my Bible here. Like It, it came from that. Um, I'm going to be telling you this story. Anyway. <clears throat> the story begins with verse 1. 
obviously, um, where Lazarus uh, says a certain man was ill, Lazarus. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. He is, um, they are all three friends of, of Jesus. He knows them relatively well. They feature in other parts of the Bible um, uh, in the Gospels as well. And he's ill. And in fact, from the very beginning, it's, it's, it's made clear that he's dying. That this is a serious illness that will lead to death. Um, and so Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus. And they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Lord, the one you love is sick. And that's verse 3. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, this illness is not going to lead to death. Um, he says, it is for the glory of God. Verse 4, it says, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified through it. Um, so immediately he's kind of setting this up to be, no, this is going to bring glory to God. He's not going to die. And then he says, let's just stay here for two more days. Um, which is mental. Like it's, They have sent essentially an emergency message saying, let's, like, we need your help. We believe you are the son of God. We believe you have power over illness and sickness. So please come and help us. And Jesus like, ah, yeah, okay, well, I'll just wait another wee while, two days. The Bible doesn't tell us. I wish it did. I wish it told us how unbelievably awkward those two days were. Because can you imagine just sitting about with Jesus, like, eh, your pal's dying. Like, let's go and see, and see him. Uh, Jesus like, no, let's just sit about. I have no idea what they did for those two days. In verse um, 11, it says, after uh, saying these things, um, Jesus said to him, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go wake him up. Um, and he was talking um, about death. Uh, they had all thought he was asleep, and they were just like, what are you talking about? And Jesus, it says, um, in verse 13, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he had meant he was taking a rest. Um so then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. Love it when Jesus kind of loses a little bit of his temper um, and shows some frustration. Telling him plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. For your sake, I was glad I was not there. So that you may believe. And again, he's just sowing that seed that he's going to do something that's going to cause glory to be brought to God and for them to believe in who he is. Um, so they travel to Bethany to the town where Lazarus was um, and when they get there it's Martha who comes out and greets Jesus um, so she comes out and she's saying he's dead and Jesus says yes in verse 23 your brother will rise again and she's like yes Jesus I know he'll rise again in the last day um, and then Jesus just kind of again cuts her off and says no I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he dies he shall yet live uh, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Um, I believe that you can do it. So again, he is setting this scene of actually, I have the power over death, over, over the grave. I have, since I am the son of God, and that's what you say I am, um, then I can make these things right. So he goes in, uh, he's greeted by everyone, and he sees everybody there. Um, the whole funeral gathering and the way they think things in Jewish culture, they were all gathered together and there was a lot of sadness, as you would expect. And in comes Jesus, who has now, on about three or four different occasions, declared that he is going to raise him from the dead. He's going to do something that's going to bring God glory. Um, and instead, what it says is that he was deeply moved um, and greatly troubled in verse 33. Deeply moved and greatly troubled. And then in verse 35, the famous verse that we, we know, the, the, the easiest memory verse in the Bible, is just Jesus wept. Verse 35 of John chapter 11. Jesus wept. 
Here he is crying at a funeral for his dead friend. Verse 38, he goes to the tomb and he is deeply moved again. Deeply moved. And in verse 39, he then asks someone to take away the stone. And they're all like, um, we don't want to. It'll be smelly. And like, fair enough. Fair enough they don't want to move the stone. Because like, can you imagine someone turning up at a funeral a couple of days late and going, dig up the, the, the coffin? Like, it's just not a thing you do. So Jesus asks them again to move the stone and they take away the stone. And Jesus calls into the tomb. In verse 43, he says, Lazarus, come out. And verse 44 says, the man who had died came out. Lazarus gets up and walks alive from the tomb. Now, he is not a ghost. He is not a zombie. The Bible loves to tell us and prove that to us because in chapter 12, actually verse 2, um, another story actually when Mary anoints Jesus uh, at Bethany, Lazarus is at the dinner table with them. Like he's eating. This guy is alive. This guy who had been dead is alive. So that's the story. So level number one is complete. If you didn't know the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, now you do, perhaps. And if you don't, please go back and actually read the Bible and see what it, it says, every single word, because it's really important. That is level number one. And now we're going to move on to level number two, which is just some observations, some things that I think about. The first thing I think is in verse three, I think it was, when Mary and Martha send their request for help to Jesus. And they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Um, essentially, what they're doing here is, is praying to God. It's the closest thing, kind of analogy we can come up with because we don't have the physical Lord Jesus to, to ask for help. We, we do just talk to him. Uh, and I love this as a model for prayer. Like it's so succinct. There is no waffling. There's no trying to dress it up. There's no trying to convince God either. No trying to kind of say, because of this, would you please do it? None of that. They simply appeal to the real heart of why God answers prayers. Why God heals. And the, the, the answer to that is because he loves us. Lord, the one you love is sick. And so for what I think, what I maybe take away from that, if this was by read through, I'd say, well, I just want my prayers to be more simple, to be succinct, to be clear, and I, and, I, and I want to understand that God wants to, to answer my prayers because he loves me. Um, Lord, the one you love is sick. I think that's great. God answers our prayers because he loves us. The second thing that I take from the story is when Jesus waits. He's just like, oh, he's sick. Yeah, and he's going to die. Yeah, he says all that. But actually, that's for the glory of God. So let's just wait two days. What? Like, it's... It's mental. Two days. Has anyone ever asked God for something and had to wait ages? Like two whole days for an answer? <laughs> Maybe longer. Um, why does God do that? I suppose firstly, I understand that God is outside of time. That to him, two days is not a long time. I also understand he's outside of time and can see there for the end from the beginning. Um I also understand that he wants to bring glory to himself. And so what I'm thinking is that Jesus waits because he wants God to be glorified. Now, I would claim that as a very profound point, except it's actually just literally what Jesus says in the Bible. He says, I'm glad I wasn't there. I want you to believe this will bring glory to God. 
So he knows that by waiting and therefore allowing Lazarus to die, there's going to be glory that's brought to him. The other week, I spoke to the, the youth at Render about Jesus calming the storm. And one thing that really struck me that I hadn't fully considered before when I read that story and was looking at it with them is that it was Jesus's idea to cross the lake in the boat. He's the one that goes, let's get in the boat and we'll sail to the other side. And I'm kind of like, Jesus, you know the end from the beginning. You're God. You know what's going to happen. The Bible proves that multiple times. So he knows there's going to be this terrifying storm. He could have been like, let's wait till tomorrow. There's going to be a storm. He could have said, let's walk. He could have just said, let's stay here. It's quite nice where we are. But he doesn't. He wants to go and face that. And he does that to prove to them that he's in control of the wind and waves. And here is another example of that. I think that God doesn't want us to avoid hardships. In fact, it's through hardship that I think God glorifies himself as we trust in him. See, the prayers of the people in the Bible are not normally, God, can you do that thing that makes life really easy and and takes all pain away and, and just it's all gone and good and perfect and simple? That's not the example I see in the Bible. The example I see in the Bible is, God, this thing is really painful and difficult and I want to trust you, so please help me. And I need to be careful here because we're talking about coronavirus, a very real and present danger. And in no way, please hear me, in no way, utterly no way, do I belittle what is going on and what is going to happen. And we'll get to that shortly. In no way is coronavirus a small thing uh, or something to just be like and shrug your shoulders and go, meh, God's in control. I don't think that's the right attitude. For Christians, for anyone, uh, I don't want to be glib. Um, the disciples were scared of the storm. Now, Jesus says they had should have had more faith, but were they wrong to be scared of the storm? They were going to die. They were going to die. Um, and they were scared. God, though, is in control so while i say i don't want to say that glibly i say that very measuredly i say that with lots of consideration god is in control he's outside of time he knows the end from the beginning he has plans and purposes and he will i believe save people eternally because of coronavirus because people are now faced with death and their mortality. I believe that. And I'm not saying that I'm glad it's happening in no way. Please hear me. I'm very, very far from it. But I believe there is a call, a challenge here for us to trust God. God is completely in control of the good and the bad. That's what I believe. Third, and I'm really not saying this crisis is a good thing. So hear me. And how do I know that Jesus agrees with that? How do I know that Jesus agrees that coronavirus is a bad thing? Well, because he turns up to the grave and he weeps in verse 38. It says he's deeply moved. He weeps, he cries. Have you ever thought, why? Why are you crying, Jesus? Like, this was your plan. You've stated multiple times that this is what you know will happen this is what you want to happen this is for a greater purpose than what all the other people can see you know that it's going to be why are you crying like why is that 
you'd think he would turn up at the grave and be like, way, and roll up his sleeves and go, listen, everybody, watch this. Glory to God. Boom, and raise Lazarus from the dead. But he doesn't. His first reaction is to weep. Now, something that's amazing about the God of the Bible that we worship is that he knows our feelings. And I do not mean he just knows about them. I mean, he experienced them. He, God, the creator of the universe, became a human being and felt every human weakness, every human emotion. He felt them all. So he not only sympathizes, he empathizes. He fully, fully understands um, what it is to be human. Our God has been a man and has cried at a funeral. Can I just say, if you are at a funeral and you are crying, then I want you to know that God fully understands that sadness because he's been there. I think that's great. I think that's really good. He cares deeply for his friend. He empathizes. I get that he's crying for his friend and his family, but he's also crying because for God, death is awful. Death is awful. It is not the way the world was designed to be. It's not his intention. And so I say that, yes, in the last point, Jesus is fully in control of the whole situation. He intended for Lazarus to die so that he could glorify himself and glorify God through it. But he still cries at the funeral and treats death as if it's awful and sad and heartbreaking. And so therefore I say that the same is true here. Yeah, God is in control of coronavirus. God is not surprised that coronavirus is a thing. God is not caught off guard by this. He is in control of it. And there will be some good that comes from it. But I also say, and it's not contradictory, that it's awful. That it's awful. These aren't separate. These aren't contradictory statements. Death is is awful, I believe. Fourth, Jesus goes uh, to the tomb and then asks someone to move the stone. And I love this. I feel like this is like an utterly recurring theme in the Bible. Because he goes to the tomb in verse 39 and says, please move the stone. Fair play is Jesus. Do you know, you're going to do what he tells you to do. You would think, although they actually they don't, but straight away. Um, I can excuse them for that. Um, except also, he's Jesus. Do you know, Jesus, you're about to give a dead man life again. You can do whatever you want. Like, why doesn't he just go in and just like levitate the stone, pick it up and move it? Like, full display of his power. Why not just at the very least command an army of angels? Army angels move the stone, thank you, and then raise the dead guy. Like, why doesn't he do that? This is a, a really consistent thing in the Bible. And it's really confusing. And I don't think there's any need for it. There's no reason for it to happen. But God wants us to take a step of faith and participate in what he's doing. Every time, I think. Please feel free to email um, if I'm wrong. But as far as I can see, every time in the Bible that God does something miraculous, he asks for a step of faith. He didn't need, when he was opening the Red Sea, he didn't need Moses' staff to be plonked into the Red Sea for it to open. When, a similar story, when the Israelites crossed the River Jordan, like they have to like walk into the water before the, the, the flow of the river stops upstream. They have to actually be in the river before it stops. That's a step of faith. Thinking even like about Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, I always think, why didn't he just go, oh, the people are hungry? Boom, now they're not. And like just fill their stomachs like like miraculously. Or or just at the very least, just like pull out a magic piece of bread from his like jumper or something. Like, no, Jesus says, what do you have to give me? 
and, and he takes the five loaves, the two fish, and he, he passes them around. Like, why does he need that? Why does he need us to participate? There's no reason for it. It's crazy. He definitely doesn't require our help. He definitely doesn't. But he asks for our participation. He asks for us to take a step of faith. Mary and Martha here asked to take a step of faith. Move the stone. It will smell. That's the risk. It's undignified, perhaps. But if you trust me, you will see your brother rise from the dead again. I mean, that's incredible. Um, God wants us to participate, to show faith. What does that look like? I, I guess, and it's not a perfect analogy because, well, it just isn't. Um, but I guess he wants us to pray. Like prayer's a really weird thing. God knows everything. He knows what's good, what's right, what's wrong. He knows what he's going to do as well. And yet he still wants human beings to pray and ask for stuff. Like why? It seems a bit odd. Pray. Like that's what I take from this. God wants us to pray in faith. Pray in faith for coronavirus. Pray in faith for all the things that are going on in our lives. All the worries and stresses and anxieties. As well as perhaps take other real small practical steps of faith. What is God asking you to do? What's God asking you to do that you're not sure about doing? It seems weird. It seems difficult. It might seem scary. Consistently in the Bible, small steps of faith are combined with God's miraculous power. Number five from the uh, my points, my final share is simply that Lazarus rises from the dead. And I think that's great. And he's alive again. He's come back from the dead. Um, and, uh, and then I think, well, where is he now? And the simple answer is that he's dead again. <laughs> and the reason that I say that is because this is not the story. This is the precursor. This is just the pale imitation of what's still to come. This is a story similar to one you might know. <laughs> that we'll talk about where a man was buried in a grave and then rose back to life again. A stone was moved. Um. This is a similar story to Jesus. And so my last point is that Lazarus is dead. And we're going to compare that now in, in level three, which, well done, you've got to this point, um, which I want to talk about now. So level three. And this is simply just the gospel. Sometimes when I'm speaking to a group full of people, a room full of people, and I think, right, I'm going to just like say the gospel now, I can look at these, all these people who are much wiser and more experienced Christians than me and think, why am I telling them this? And, and it becomes maybe a little bit awkward. And I'm so glad I can't see you just now, because actually I think we do really all need to hear the gospel all the time, a million times, a billion times. Just, it's really important. If you've never heard this, then please listen. See, I told you already that God created a perfect world and that it was not designed for death to be a part of it. It was when we chose our own way that death came into it. We were not meant to die. We were meant to live forever. And the consequences of sin is that a wall was then plonked down saying, no, actually, that's the end. You'll get to a certain age, you will decay and you will die. That was not the way the world was meant to be. That's why we cry. That's why we find death sad. Because it's not meant to be. There's an inbuilt thing inside of us saying that's not how the world is meant to be. And so God sent himself, Jesus. God himself was born as a human being 
took on all the human emotions that we talked about, came to live, but not to live the same way we do, but to live a perfect, perfect life. He came, he lived, he did incredible things like raising Lazarus from the dead. And then after having done nothing wrong, he was arrested. He was tried in a sham trial. He was beaten and tortured. He was crucified and murdered, executed by the Romans. He died. On the Friday, two days later, <laughs> on the Sunday, he rose from the dead. No one called him out. No one moved the stone on his behalf. He got up and he walked back out, seemingly back from the dead, except that's not the right way to put it. And I think that this is really important. You see, Lazarus was dead, was alive and then went to death to that big wall and Jesus called him back. And so he came back from the dead and lived his life again and then went, well, back to death. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus lived his life and he got to that point of death and, it, and didn't come back. What he did was he smashed that wall of death and walked out through the other side. He destroyed death. He ended death. He abolished death, whatever way you want to put it. Uh, put it. No longer is death the end because of what Jesus has done. No longer is death final or lasting. It's something we all have to follow Jesus into. Yes, death is a real thing. And whether it's now or in the future, like we're all going to die. But actually, if we follow Jesus, we can find that route through to the other side, which is longer, more glorious, more perfect on the other side. Better, eternal. That's why Jesus' death and resurrection is much better, much more important, much greater than the death of Lazarus. That's why... He declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? My question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus gives us hope after death? The notion of death being beaten is summed up beautifully in 1 Corinthians, where it says, death has been swallowed up in victory. And then it goes to this kind of mocking tone, I always like to think it is. It's like, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We sing that a lot, like, death, where is your sting? Have you ever thought about it? A wasp has a sting, right? Terrifying wee creatures. A wasp has a wee jabber on its bottom. Um, I'm not a scientist. Um, and it jabs you. And when it jabs you, it's the venom that then seeps into you. And hurts. And actually, like, I mean, I've got a low pain threshold, but hurts quite a lot, like a considerable amount. Can you imagine what a wasp would be like if it had its venom, its stinginess taken away? It would just be this wee, quite colourful fly that buzzes around and, yeah, it might jab you. But you would just kind of look down at your arm and go, oh, I've been jabbed, and flick it off. Like, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be lasting. Its power would have been gone. It would have been something to acknowledge, something to look at, something to then flick and get over. And so this is all relative because that's the analogy. Death is like a wasp that's had its venom removed. Yeah, it still exists. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still there. It's still a reality we have to face. But much like we can just look down at a wasp and flick it off. And I'm saying it's relative because death is awful. Um, we can 
see that it's had its power taken away. Death no longer has its sting. Death is not forever. Death is not lasting. It's just an annoying wee jab on the skin that we can flick away. We're not in control of this world. And we are all going to die. And we all know folks who are going to die. And uh, and actually, because of this virus, we might face these things before our time. Um, which is the Prime Minister's words and not Psalm 139's words. <laughs> I don't have a challenge today. I just simply feel like a message where I say that we're all going to die is probably enough of a challenge. But what I do want you to think about simply is that if you are a follower of Jesus already, then rest assured that death has lost its power because of Jesus. And I'm saying that if you're not a follower of Jesus, then become one. I'm going to pray um, to finish. Um, and as I'm praying, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe perhaps lead you in, 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 in praying to become a follower of Jesus. And if you've never done that before, I really urge you just to pray along in agreement with me or or say the words you're in your own house. Anyway, let's pray. Father God, um, I love you. Lord, I thank you that you are in control. I thank you that you know the end from the beginning. That although we do face these scary things, God, you are with us that you are completely, fully in control. But I also thank you, God, that in many ways it is okay to be afraid and to be sad because you were sad uh, when your friend died. I thank you that you sympathise. I thank you that you know our feelings. I thank you that you care about how we are in our anxieties. Um, I really praise you for that. But God, I also thank you that you have sent Jesus. I thank you, God, that we have now got this hope for the future, that death has lost its power, that its venom is gone, that we have this ability to uh, to now follow you through death and into the other side and into glorious, perfect life with you forever. Lord God, I want to say that I need you. I want to say that I'm sorry for my sin. I want to say that I love you, that I want to follow you, that I want to be with you forever. Please help me, God. Help us, God, as we face death. Help us, God, as we face all the challenges of this world. Be with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.